0: episode of the federalist files what's really going to happen on january 6th who is behind the funding and approval of fact checkers An expert hacks into the georgia runoff elections and finally senate investigation finds that obama administration knowingly funded al-qaeda affiliate but first we'll get to mayor de blasio saying the sound part out loud that we need to profoundly like to say very bluntly, our mission is to redistribute wealth. A lot of people bristle at that phrase. That is, in fact, the phrase we need to use. There you go, Cami de Blasio. I think he actually calls himself Cami. I think he actually identifies as a communist, to be honest with you. So he says the silent part part out loud. A lot of people are very uh, angry at him right now because on New Year's Eve... He shut down Times Square, and then he went out there and danced with his wife. Uh, right now, it seems like we have a protected political class in this country, almost of a sense of uh, a nobility class, almost like a royal family, it seems like, the political class, the way the way right now that they are uh, doing the not for rules for thee and not for me. Uh, that is their MO right now. <laughs> So what I have, I have a huge show today, I'm I'm pumped up, I have some information, I'm going to start off first with what is going on, what is going to happen on January 6th, uh, there's a lot of reports right now, they're saying 11 different senators, the, the list has been changing because more people are added onto the list, at first it was Josh Hawley from I think Missouri, Missouri Senator, Republican, uh, he was going to appeal or he was going to object to the results of some of these states that were coming in for the electoral votes, which is a completely constitutional process. And then I think now I've heard Ted Cruz is going to lead the GOP there. And then we're going to have, in the House of Reps, I think there's been a couple people that have said they're going to object. As long as you get an objection from one of, from both of the chambers of Congress, then that starts the, I guess you would call it an appeals process, or rather the 12th Amendment process. So I'm going to go through all that. Then I have some, I have some uh, Mark Levin wrote a little editorial, a little editorial, more like an opinion piece. About all the different fraud in different states and how they did not follow the Constitution, and I think the theme of this of this video is going to be the chickens have kind of come home to roost. We have been not really we, as in I mean, but our our pol- political class, they have been disregarding the Constitution for a long time, and now it's actually really going to come to bite, bite us in the butt because. It seems like this. If you look through different states, the way in which they ran their elections, the way in which they chose their electors, which is the power of the legislative branch of that state, so the state legislature and the state legislature is now suddenly passing on the duty to other uh, government, other government branches, which is against the Constitution. So there's been there's been consistent violations of the Constitution, and now since. We have the Supreme Court doesn't want to rule on anything either. It just seems like now everything's kind of coming to fruition at this point uh, to January 6th. That's going to be the date where the Supreme Court's actually, I mean, I don't know how else they, I don't know how they don't rule on the case. If you look at constitutionally, they have to really, because there is not a gray area, but there is some apparent um, apparent violations of the Constitution that they have to rectify or they have to, at least put it up to some sort of a vote, or they have to converse, they have to talk about it. So here what I have is, and this is Epic Times, an Epic Times article, I'm going to get into what's going to happen on January 6th. It's titled, Power of Vice President to Count or Reject Electoral Votes Disputed. Uh, It is by Peter Schwab. It was written December 29th, 2020. So it states, At 1 p.m. local time on January 6th, members of Congress will gather in the chamber of the House of Representatives to observe the formal certification of Electoral College votes for President of the United States. While it's usually a formality, nothing has been usual so far about this year's election and numerous allegations of voter fraud in key swing states the situation is complicated by a lack of clarity on the legal and constitutional guardrails for the process the joint session of Congress may well result in gridlock in which a clear winner of the race isn't announced at all so like I said we're going to have two Both the I'm going to try to make this as clear as possible and explain it the best I can uh, we're going to have two chambers of com, uh, Congress, you are going to have the House of Representatives the Senate, they're both going to meet uh to count the electors the electors are supposed to be it's it's the power of the vice president the vice president or the president of they call it the president of uh of the senate who is our vice president so it's going to go on to explain this part Uh, based on current election results former vice president joe biden has received 306 electoral votes to Trump's 232 votes. Meanwhile, Republicans in seven states where Biden claimed victory have sent their own sets of electoral votes to Washington, and some members of the House have indicated that they will object to Biden. Uh, Biden electors in some states. Any objection would require support from one House member and one Senate, one senator to be considered, and at least one senator has left open the possibility he would join the effort. So that is Josh Hawley at this time. Now it's like a it's a list of I think at this point it's eleven senators. So you're going to need an objector from a House the House of Representatives and uh, a, an objector from the Senate. Now, this is each individual state when they go to count when uh, Vice President Pence goes to open up the electors. Now, the rule the way this goes is if you have a if you have a state what if you have a state let's say your state has like New Jersey has fifteen electoral votes. Dependent on who wins that state. So New Jersey isn't really heavily disputed since it's so... Apparently it's so blue. I don't actually know how blue it really is. Who knows if there is some sort of corruption in the system. I have no clue. Maybe it's super blue. Maybe it isn't that blue. I don't know. But New Jersey is not one that is being disputed right now. So the state legislature, they get the votes. They tally them up. They say, okay, the majority was to Biden in this state. So they choose 15 electors, All Democrats. Because it's a Democrat that uh, was elected. Now there's 15 for the Democrat and 15 in the case of a Republican, and if it was a Republican, they would choose the Republican electors to go go to Capitol Hill or and cast their votes. So what we have now is we have state legislatures that, because of the the voter fraud allegations and the the inconsistencies they have sent, they have voted to send two. They've sent the Democrat and the Republican electors. So now when this happens, of these two sets of electors, they have to be, the state legislature is going to have to vote on which one is the legitimate one. Or the, not the state, I'm sorry, the the federal government legislature. So the the Congress, the House of Representatives, and the Senate are going to have to vote on which one is the uh, legitimate one. But the House of Reps, according to the 12th Amendment, the House of Reps to vote, they have to follow whatever the state legislatures say in the United States. So it's a very complicated, there are some kind of gray areas, but I'll try to explain it the best I can. I'm just trying to give you a brief overview. Uh, now, the Constitution simply states that electors of each state have to meet, make a list of their votes, which they shall sign and certify, and send those to the President of the Senate, who is Mike Pence, the Vice President. Uh, the President of... And this this is directly from the Constitution. The President of Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and House of Representatives, open all the certif- certificates, and the votes shall then be counted. And that's, that's the 12th Amendment there. So the electoral count of... Act of 1887, currently known as 3 U.S. Code Section 15, establishes a procedure for, for how the votes are counted, how to raise objections, and how to resolve disputes. First, it says that the Vice President indeed presides over the proceedings. Uh, then it says the House and Senate leaders each designate two tellers. The VP opens the envelopes with the vote cer- certificates and hands them to the tellers for counting. The tellers then read them out loud, count them, and hand them back to the VP to announce the results. Uh, so, so really, VP just hands it to one of these tellers. Tellers writes it down. Um, and then they yell, yell it aloud. They count them. And then they give it to the VP. And then he announces the results. Then, in rather convoluted language, the law says that Congress members can object. At least one objection from each chamber is needed to trigger a separate vote by both House and Senate on the objections. If both chambers agree, the objected voters are rejected. That's virtually out of the question given the Democrats' majority in the House. So what you're going to have is you're going to have apparently this the house of representatives and the senate if there's objections on on each uh, chamber then you're going to have the house of representatives vote that that's a democrat uh, elector it's going to be a democrat electors but then also the senate's going to do the same thing they're going to vote for the republican because they have a a small republican majority in the senate so because of that it's going to offset each other now then it goes on, if two sets of electors are presented for counting, the House and Senate need to separately vote on which set is legitimate and which should be rejected. If each chamber votes differently, the set certified by the state's governors, the state's governor should count. That would hand the victory to Biden. Now, the problem here is that the governor shouldn't matter because the person sent the, the government, uh, the branch of government that is responsible for certifying and sending the electors uh, their ballots or what have you out to Capitol Hill, out to Washington, is the legislator of the state. So it doesn't really, it's, it's constitutionally void. I mean, this act is really unconstitutional because the legislatures are the ones that are responsible. The state legislators are the ones responsible for choosing and verifying the electors. So the state governor really should have no say because he's of the executive power. This is a legislative discretion. Um, and that's really where the problem arises. So then it continues. The problem is there's a voluminous body of legal analysis arguing that the Electoral Count Act is unconstitutional. Congress has no business granting itself the authority to decide which, state le- which slate of electors is the correct one and which votes should be rejected, nor does Congress have the power to designate state governors as the final arbiters. A lineup of legislators and legal scholars have argued, which they're right, uh, because those are supposed to be certified. Once again, in the Constitution, these, and this is like the electors clause of the Constitution, the electors are supposed to be chosen and verified by the state legislatures, individual state legislatures, so it doesn't make sense that that now this is suddenly a federal power where really it is, it should get kicked back to the state. That's how it constitutionally. That's how it should work. Uh, if 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 the Supreme Court had some sort of intestinal fortitude, maybe they would actually do something. I don't know what they're going to end up doing. So I'm just trying to give you the background information, and and this is what's going to play out uh, on January 6th. Now some jurists say it's the VP who has the sole discretion to decide which votes to count. The argument is that the framers intended for the VP to be the sole authority over the counting of the votes because the unanimous resolution attached to the Constitution said that the Senate should appoint its president for the sole purpose of receiving, opening, and counting the votes for president. Moreover, before the adoption of the Electoral Count Act, it was always the VP counting the votes Sometimes, despite major objections from Congress, Thomas Jefferson did so as the VP in the 1800 election, counting Georgia's constitutionally deficient votes and de facto securing his own presidency. I'm not really sure about all the information uh, pertaining to that. See, I don't really, some jurists, meaning uh, practicers of law, think that it is the VP's sole discretion to count the ballots and, and verify every single one of them. And I, I personally, me, that doesn't make any sense because then you're you're giving the sole power all to one individual who is the VP and then that's a system that can easily be corrupted. So I don't know really who came up with that, Who what jurist believes that. Um, I just don't think that's true. That does not really line up with any type of constitutional practice. That is not the elector's clause. So now, Arizona state lawmakers and GOP electors, together with Rep. Louis Gohmert, a Republican from Texas, have filed a federal suit asking for the court to clarify the law to the effect that the Electoral Count Act is unconstitutional and the VP's power is paramount. Um, Now, this is something that they uh, he was he was I think he was essentially Gohmert was like suing Mike Pence to try to try to get the supreme court to rule on something and the supreme court obviously of course they they wouldn't even take the case they threw it out once again because they're god forbid the supreme court actually has to has to make a ruling on some sort of constitutional uh provision because they're not going to do right now they do not want to take anything and i just don't know how this is going to end up playing out if we have a bunch of lackluster spineless people that are in our government that just are deciding to not do their jobs and it is highly important i don't understand. Why everyone is just somehow okay? I guess maybe because the media is is suppressing everything that's going on, and, and you only have a few people that actually know about the Electors Clause or know about the Twelfth Amendment. Uh, but they're they're afraid right now to make any type of move. So uh, University of Virginia professor John Harrison, an expert on constitutional history, says that the VP doesn't have any constitutional power to make decisions over which votes to count, which I would agree with him on that note. Now, he argued that the law is deficient to the effect that Congress doesn't have the power to make the announcement of its decisions regarding the vote count conclusive but that doesn't mean it can't prescribe any rules at all. The Constitution does call for counting the votes with both houses present, so I think that setting up procedures for a count is within Congress's power. Now, uh, the second argument... And this, this is the one that I think is much more constitutional. And if, if the Supreme Court actually took the case and they followed by the Constitution, this is what would end up happening. The second argument is that the Constitution grants the authority to determine how electors are picked to state legislatures. Uh, as such, any disputes over which votes should be counted should be resolved by the state legislatures. The problem is state legislatures aren't in session and they can't assemble in a special session without a call from the governors who have refused to do so so that's also something that is in the um the federal constitution i think has something like the president can adjourn the court if the court doesn't want to meet or something like he can like force them um out right now and i think the state legislature's Maybe because of some sort of code restriction, they're out of session and they can't meet and the governors aren't going to make any move on it because God, once again, God forbid we had some sort of people that had like a spine and wanted to figure out how to, how to make the system work. So meanwhile, the legislatures have usually delegated the power to certify electors to the governors and secretaries of state, undermining their own authority on the matter. So that's something that is directly unconstitutional. They can't delegate their own powers because then now you have a commingling of powers if if the legislature for example in the federal government if they decided to give the power of declaring war to the president uh, then the president can just declare war at will whenever he wants to it's a violation of the constitution so the fact that they were even giving certifying the electors uh giving this power to the governors and especially the secretary of state because a lot of these states secretary of state is just a bureaucrat that's not even someone that's elected in some of these states i'm pretty sure um Now, the conservative Amistad project of the Thomas More Society has filed a federal lawsuit arguing that the power of the legislatures is both exclusive and non-delegable, meaning you can't delegate it to people. You can't just uh, dodge or obviate your powers and your responsibilities, and give it to some pass it on to somebody else. And I've explained this before the government officials love the bureaucracy, they love putting people in charge so they don't have to take any type of blame or any responsibility when something goes wrong. And thus, any state and federal statutes to the contrary are unconstitutional and void. Which I think my personal view here, from what I know about constitutional law, what I know about what I've read. Uh, this would be the best opinion, this would legally, this would make the most sense constitutionally. That would not only knock down some provisions of the Electoral Count Act, but also render electoral votes that haven't been certified post-election by state legislatures illegitimate. So what we're looking at, just to try to attempt to wrap everything up for you, we're going to have on on January 6th, we're going to have both of the chambers of Congress they're going to meet, we're going to have uh, Vice President Pence open to certify. We're going to get objectors from both sides of the, of the Congress. And then at that point, we really do not know what's going to happen. It could either be kicked back to the state legislatures because we're going to have the House of Representatives because the Electoral Vote Act. We're going to have the House of Representatives as well as the Senate or both. And, and this is somehow this contradicts the 12th Amendment. That's why it doesn't really make any sense. And that's why it is unconstitutional. So, I don't, that's what I'm saying. It could go where the state legislatures have to like automatically vote on it, which would be much more of the 12th Amendment. That would be much more constitutional. Or it could go the Electoral Count Act, where you have one, uh, you have the House of Reps, they vote Democrat. And then you have the Republicans, they vote Republican. And this is saying all that ends up happening. Who knows? The Republicans can be total hack, spineless losers like mitt romney because you know mitt romney's obviously not going to vote republican because he's a hack job so who knows what could happen you can have a bunch of people that have um no no spine in this now what could it what ends up what could end up happening is it gets kicked back to the state legislatures and the state legislatures then have to figure it out or the supreme supreme court has to at some point get involved because they're they do not even understand how to interpret the rules, and then at some point, I think uh, I'm not sure, but I, from what I've understood, I think Pelosi can tr- attempt to like block it or something by just saying we're not going to hold a vote or something. I don't know. So then I have a next a next article I have here, and I'm ho- I'm hoping that I. I try to do my best to explain it to everybody just so you kind of have the wherewithal when you go into it and anybody asks you any questions, you kind of have an understanding of what exactly might happen on January 6th. So I have a Mark Levin, like I said, it's an opinion piece from him. It was on The Blaze, December 30th, 2020. It is titled Levin. On January 6th, we learn whether our constitution will hold. And he's going to explain it a little deeper and further. And the reason why our system set up the way it is, which I've explained it, but it, he puts it in a really good context because he is, uh, he's a lawyer. Now, specifically, Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 of the Federal Constitution could not be more explicit. It states, in pertinent part, and I quote, Each state shall appoint in such ma- manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors, equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. So that's exactly what I was talking about. The state legislatures, they're the ones that they select the number of electors. That is a legislative power. That is their power. Specifically, it cannot be be delegated to somebody else. Now, this language was purposeful. He states, During the Constitutional Convention, there were various proposals suggested for the electing a president should the president be directly elected by the people. That proposal was rejected out of concern that such a purely uh, democratic process could be hijacked by a temporary majority should the president be chosen in the first instance from within the national legislature. That proposal was also rejected on the grounds of separation of powers. Because then uh, the national legislature essentially would hold the power over the president because they would be electing the president. Should the judiciary play a role in the selection of the president? That idea was dispensed with as being the most objectionable as judges were to be the least political of all public officials, which is true. Now, the framers deliberately... Uh, And with much thought created the electoral college process in which the people and their elected legislatures both state and national would play important roles but the electoral process rested first and foremost on the state legislatures directing how the electors would be chosen. The reason, while rejecting the direct election of a president, the framers concluded that the state legislatures were close to, closest to the people in their respective states and would be the best rep- to represent their interests. The state legislature, um, they really represent much more than the House of Raps or, or the senator. Now, at no time did the framers even raise the possibility that governors, attorneys generals, secretaries of state, election boards, administrators, so essentially the governors and a bunch of bureaucrats would play any significant role in the electoral process. Indeed, certain certain of those offices did not even exist at that time. So moreover, as I said, the courts were rejected out of hand. Thus, such an important power was to be exercised exclusively by the state legislatures he goes on and this is where he goes on to explain each individual's state and how they really um <laughs> how they all violated the Constitution in one way or the other. So in Pennsylvania, considered the battleground of the battleground states, the Democrat governor, attorney general, and secretary of state made and enforced multiple changes to the state's voting procedures, all of which were intended to assist the Democrats and Biden. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court, whose seven justices are elected, has a 5-2 to two Democrat majority. In 2018, there was a big push to get... Uh, by the Democrat party to fill the three seats with Democrats and they succeeded. Thus is that's the reason in Pennsylvania. It's surprising because it is uh pretty red in a lot of areas that they have a five to two Democrat majority uh, just months before the elect, the general election that court rewrote, the state election laws to eliminate signature requirements or signature matching eliminate postal markings that were intended to ensure votes were timely and extended the counting of mail-in ballots to friday at 5 p.m um, now state law had a hard date and time election day on tuesday which ended at 8 p.m eastern time thereby fundamentally altering pennsylvania's election laws and nullifying the federal constitutional role. Role of the Republican legislature. Uh, essentially, anything that's done by a governor, or even by a, a court in uh, in Pennsylvania to change voting laws, to change any law, really, in, in a general sense, unless if you can point to a constitutional mandate, like the, the court in Pennsylvania has to abide by the federal constitution and also has to abide by the state constitution. Now, the state constitution, if there's something constitutionally in there that can change that that they can change the law, the court, if it's constitutional. It has to be legit derived from the Constitution, and then they kind of set a precedent through case law, and then that changes the law. But here they did not change the law by pointing to anything that is constitutional, and the governor has no right or no power to change the law in any way. That is all of the legislative power of the legislative character. Thus, they, they violated the federal constitution as well as the state... Uh, constitution as well. So now in Michigan, among other things, the Democrat Secretary of State unilaterally changed the state's election laws with respect to absentee ballot applications and signature verification. Indeed, she sent unsolicited absentee ballot applications by mail prior to the pr- primary and general elections. State law required would be state law required would be voters to request such ballots. She intentionally circumvented the Republican state legislature and violated the federal constitution by issuing over 7 million unsolicited ballots, thus, um, once again, violating not only their state constitution because their state law required that you had to request such ballots. So she sent them all out unsolicited. Furthermore, a claim, a court of claims judge appointed by a Democrat ordered clerks to accept ballots postmarked by November 2nd and received within 14 days of the election the deadline for results to be certified. The ballots would be counted as provisional ballots. The state legislature had no role in these changes. So so all of these changes that happened, especially by a secretary of state, Um, whether they were elected or not, that is not of, once again, Secretary of State would be somebody that is in the executive branch, that is not somebody in the legislative branch, and they do not, they're not the sole, the sole arbiter of power and discretion, they do not have power like that, where they could just change the laws at a whim. Because then we are no longer a republic, then we are just a monarchy, and we are a monarchical structure where we're just giving random people all this. Or we're more of an aristocracy where we have a couple connected few political class individuals that can really do whatever they want on a whim. So now in Wisconsin, the Elections Commission and local Democrat officials in the state state's largest cities, including Milwaukee and Madison, changed the state's election laws. Among other things, they placed hundreds of unmanned drop boxes in strategic locations in direct violation of state law. Not surprisingly, the locations were intended to be most convenient to Democrat voters. In addition, they told would-be voters how to avoid security measures like signature verification and photo ID requirements these bureaucrats and local officials bypass the republican legislature in altering state election procedures so once again any state uh the the state legislature has the power of setting the election procedures as well pretty much anything having to do with passing law that is all of the legislative discretion enforcing law is all of the executive and then interpreting law is all of the all of the judicial, and that's something you learn the three branches, like when you're in high school. So in Georgia now, the Secretary of State is a Republican, regardless, as explained in the Texas lawsuit brought against Georgia and the other, uh, the three other states mentioned above on March sixth, twenty twenty, in Democratic Party of Georgia versus Raffensperger. Uh, Georgia's Secretary of State entered a compromise settlement agreement and release with the Democratic Party of Georgia to materially change the statutory requirements for reviewing signatures on absentee ballot envelopes to confirm the voter's identity by making it far more difficult to challenge defective signatures beyond the 22 express mandatory procedures set forth at Georgia. And there's a code here. It's like code 212386A1B uh, among Uh, 71. Among other things, before a ballot could be rejected, the settlement required a registrar who found a defective signature to now seek a review by two other registrars. And only if a majority of the registrars agreed that the signature was defective could the ballot be rejected, but not before all three registrars' names were written on the ballot envelope along with the reason for the rejection. These cumbersome uh, procedures are in direct conflict with Georgia's statutory requirements. As is the settlement requirement that notice be provided by telephone if a telephone number is available. Finally, the settlement purports to require state election officials to consider issuing guidance and training materials drafted by an ex- expert retained by the Democratic Party of Georgia. Georgia's Republican legislature had no role in the role in these electoral changes resulting from con- the uh, consent. De- decree now this is why there was such a low rejection rate is because even if the the these signatures did not match you needed to get three people to disprove and sign off on it and when you're counting ballots and you're doing all this work these people probably were just too lazy and they didn't if they saw something that was questionable they just said whatever and they passed it along because otherwise they had to get three people they all had to sign and it was too much to begin with the the, the rule change by the secretary of state is unconstitutional because that was supposed to be done by the state legislature once again So, uh, the United States and this, these are now the left. If you see the left wing, whether it's the media, they are they are all uh, perpetuating this 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 contrived narrative that there was no such thing as voter fraud. There was no inconsistencies. Now you can let's say they're completely correct. Let's say none of that happened. Right? Let's just throw that out there. Nothing. Nothing. Now all these other things are all violations in the Constitution this is black and white this is all in writing this is black and white information this is all things that are that were violations of the Constitution anyway so then what do we do about that and that's on top of all the other inconsistencies on top of all the voter fraud uh, allegations so now he goes on to talk about the Supreme Court the United States Supreme Court had an opportunity before the election and in this general election cycle to make clear to the states That they must comply with the plain language of Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 of the Constitution. Indeed, when a federal district judge in Michigan altered the state's election laws, a closely divided U.S. Supreme Court overturned his order. Justice Gorsuch pointed out that the state legislature's rights election laws. However, when a case was brought to the court involving the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's interference in state election laws, the U.S. Supreme Court was paralyzed. Chief Justice Roberts attempted to distinguish between federal and state courts, which is irrelevant. In another instance, Justice Alito ordered the Pennsylvania Secretary of State not once but twice to segregate certain mail-in ballots, but none nothing came of it. A court divided against itself cannot stand, to to paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, its failure to enforce the Constitution, and by that I don't mean make law or intervene in legitimate state election decisions, has contributed mightily to our current plight. And he is completely correct. What he is saying is... Since the Supreme Court backed off of everything and they didn't make any decisions before the election, when they could have actually, they could have prevented everything. They could have prevented all of this, and now they're going to have to make a very brash decision, or if they fail to make a decision, that's a, that's a further distrust in our institutions and in our government system, not not the actual system itself, but more the people that run the system, which I've explained before. Um, so the big one really here is, is how much of a hack job, uh, justice Roberts is how he's saying, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to make a vote on it because there's a difference between federal and state courts, which makes no difference because what he's saying is, oh, since this one was of the state discretion, I don't think I should have to rule on it. Uh, yeah, I shouldn't have to rule on it because one of them's of a state court and one of them's of a federal court, which doesn't matter because you are the Supreme court. You have supreme power over all those other courts, so it doesn't really make it's nonsensical. Essentially, that that argument does not make any sense. It is devoid, it is devoid of any type of uh, semblance. So next, what I have, and and this is this is something that's very troubling. Uh, what's going on, and and like I said, the narrative that's been contrived is almost like. Uh, you're like a conspiracy theorist, you know what you're talking about, you're making it up and all this and all the information's out there, it's open source information, it's just not being fed to you because if you go on Google, if you go on Facebook and you even make any type of statement, then you get fact check. And when you get fact check on Facebook, what they do is they, they suppress your content from being so no one else can see it now if it's fact check. So that's another way for them to put a little disclaimer on there to begin with. It's a disclaimer people think it's false. That's the first thing it's saying that's false, or it's saying it needs uh, what's, uh, needs context, right? But then on top of that, in their algorithm, they change the algorithm so it can't be seen by anybody. And that's what they do to try to shut down things they disagree with. And it's troubling because they, they're controlling all the... They have Google, Facebook, these big, you know, Twitter, YouTube. Uh, they have this huge... They really are making campaign donations through the Democrat Party. They have a huge impact on the way people think, on what they think, and it seems like that's kind of fallen on the wayside where people are unaware that that's going on. So next what I have is I have Stacey Abrams' sister rules in a Georgia case. It's a Blaze article. It is titled, it is written on a uh, December 29th, it is written by Phil Shiver. It's titled, Federal Judge, who is Stacey Abrams' sister, orders two Georgia counties to stop removing voters from Rolls ahead of January 5th uh, runoffs. Now, a federal judge has ordered two counties in Georgia to reverse course on removing thousands of individuals from voter rolls ahead of the state's January 5th Senate runoffs. The Judge Leslie Abrams uh, Gardner... Who is was the sister of former Democrat candidate for governor, Stacey Abrams, a prominent ally of Democratic uh, President-elect Joe Biden, issued these, the ruling Monday, concluding the counties relied on ver- unverified change of address data to proceed with the action. So essentially, uh, the post office has a system, it's a change of address, and there's people that were changing their address moving out of the state. And getting all of their and documents that you get in the mail are very important. It's whether it's medical bills, whether it's uh, car payment information, you can have bank bank and accounting information on there. So what the way I look at it is, um, so if they did a change of, it's a national change of address. People were moving out of Georgia, going from Georgia to you know Florida. Let's say uh, those people now are no longer valid voters in Georgia, and they should be taken off the voter rolls. And that's what. Uh, I think I reported, it. I don't remember the name of the group, but they put in for it to the Georgia government and there's this whole system they have set up and the, and the government looks through it and they send like a disclaimer or something like that out to the people and the people have time to respond or what have you. So uh, Stacey Abrams' sister completely threw this out and said that it's not legitimate because it's unverified change of address. And the way I look at it is I, I highly doubt there's people just randomly changing uh, the address of individuals that live in the state of Georgia, because then people living in those states would know when they 're not getting their mail anymore that someone 's messing with their system and i don 't even know you might actually have to show uh you know i d or something like that when you go to change address that would actually make sense. you would have to fill out some sort of i 'm not exactly sure what you have to, but i don 't think there 's people just finding other people 's names online filling out. A change of address form just to disenfranchise them. I just don't see that happening really because it would take so much time to do that. I just don't see. And then, and not, not only that, but that's also a criminal charge and that would eventually be caught because if you're disenfranchising thousands of voters and thousands of people, and now we're not getting their mail, and then now they're finding there's change of address forms. This is weird, and to to file a change of address form, you either have to put it in your mailbox or you have to do it online. So then you have now the postal inspectors, you have the FBI on your tail. It's just not worth doing all of that. Um, so this is what she writes, Stacey Abrams' sister. Defendants are enjoined from removing any challenged voters in Ben Hill and Muskegee, Counties from the registration lists on the basis of national change of address data, uh, she wrote in the order. Political reported that the majority of the registration officials were seeking to rescind about 4,000 of the Muskegee County voters, where Biden claimed an easy victory, while an additional 150 registrations were from Ben Hill County, where President Trump won by a sizable margin. So I mean, it is bipartisan. I mean, obviously, you know, 4,000 votes. It's not even that many votes to begin with, but they're just trying to legitimize the process as much as possible and um, give some integrity to it. And obviously, Stacey Abrams' sister throws it out. And to begin with, she's totally partisan. She's a partisan hack, obviously, like her sister is. And that is another thing that I didn't mention, but the, the Secretary of State in Georgia, they said he was a Republican. You know, he's accountable for these changes in the rules. This guy is... Uh, reportedly historically he's just a rich dude that just wanted a position in government and his family's like connected so he's not really a real republican uh there's some weird stuff with Kemp too apparently i don't know i don't really want to get into it but this guy's not like a real republican he's not like a die-in-the-wool republican he's just kind of a country club rich guy that got into the position because he knew people and then he campaigned you know another thing to add to his resume essentially uh, continues here. The election boards in each of the counties had approved motions filed by local voters claiming the registration should be removed based on data from the United States Postal Service's uh, national change of address database that allegedly showed the individual had moved out of the county. In her Monday order, Gardner ruled that the evidence in... Each case was not conclusive enough to support the removal and noted that the removals may have violated federal law because the voters were not given proper notice as is required within 90 days of a federal election. Um, what they're really afraid of, I think, at Georgia is that some sort of, I guess, I don't know if they have an unsolicited ballot system. I'm not exactly sure. But the real problem with this more than anything is the fact that this lady was not recused. Uh, Stacey Abrams, sister. Now, earlier on Monday, the Muskegee County Election Board filed a motion requesting Gardner's recusal. and, And this is Muskegee County Elections Board. Now, that is that is somebody that is a county that Biden won in. So you have people that I would assume are Democrats requesting her not to be there. Uh, from the case given her connection to abrams but the request was denied abrams after losing her run uh, for governor in 2018 has become a vocal proponent of increasing voter registration in the state earlier this month georgia secretary of state's office announced it had launched an investigation into the new georgia Pro- uh, project a third-party registration group founded by stacy abrams for repeatedly and aggressively seeking to register ineligible out-of-state and deceased voters ahead of the runoff election so you You have have Stacey Abrams, the founder of, you know, Stacey Abrams, essentially her agency, this third party registration group that she that she started herself is trying to illegally um, register people to vote. Now in the motion lawyers for the board described Abrams as a Georgia politician and voting rights activist who was the Democratic candidate in the 2018 Georgia gubernatorial election and has since engaged in various highly publicized efforts to increase voter registration and turnout for the 2020 general election in Georgia. So that's really it and next what I have And now this is going to I'm going to continue on this note. I got a couple weird confusing situation going on in Pennsylvania but just to add now from what I understand I think they're going to have some they're they're going to be running the same Dominion machines in Georgia and there's an expert witness testimony uh the gentleman's name is Jovan Pulitzer Pulitzer he's expert testimony i guess he knows some sort of he knows stuff about cybercrime he apparently he's an inventor he created this this device that scans qr codes and then it gives you information based on the scan something like that i don't remember exactly but here's what he has to say about the dominion voting systems Uh, teams working on this and our technology teams into it and as was broke uh early in the week and last week about connected devices at this very moment at a polling location in the county um not only do we now have access through the devices to the poll pad the system but we are in and it's not supposed to have wi-fi and that's not supposed to be able to happen so we've doc- documented now it's communicating two ways in real time, meaning it's receiving data and sending data, should never happen, shouldn't be Wi-Fi. We've now documented it in real time so we can suck down the data. But that's going on right there where everybody's voting. And I just wanted to get it into the record. Uh, so there you go. That that gentleman's name is Joven, Joven Pulitzer. Uh, he's, that's his expert testimony, what he's saying, essentially, is these machines right now in Georgia for this, this runoff election, we were able, I guess, whoever his white hat hackers, it is connect, first off, it's connected at this point right now, it is connected to the internet, it is receiving data in, and it is also, so it's uploading as well as downloading, it is sending it out, and it is also receiving it. Um, so, at this point, we really, he's pretty much saying, and that's something that should not be going on. So, they could probably, at this point, uh, change and manipulate whatever results they wanted to or or add or, you know, uh, delete votes if, if they really wanted to. So, that's just something there. And, and I think, from what I understand, they might actually be doing an audit of these of these voting machines. Maybe I'll get back to you on that cause I'm not exactly sure. But I was reading some stuff saying they might be doing an audit on the voting machines now because of all of that information that just came out. So now I have another um, voting inconsistency, and this is something that Trump tweeted out. He got fact-checked on because what he was saying was uh, 200,000 people uh, voted more than are registered to vote, which wasn't true. But they do have the total ballots cast. Um, They have the county data is coming up, and this is in Pennsylvania, I'll have everything that I'm referring to as well. It'll all be in the description below. I'll have it labeled under show notes that's all the things that I refer to. And this this was um off of this was off of an immediate release document from PA lawmakers on Harrisburg. They say the numbers don't add up. Certification of presidential results premature and in error. A group of state lawmakers performing extensive analysis of election data today revealed troubling discrepancies between the number of total votes counted and total total number of voters who voted in 2020 general election. And as a result, are questioning how the results of the presidential election could possibly have been certified by the Secretary of the Commonwealth, Kathy Buchvar, which, once again, I don't know why these results are getting certified by a secretary of commonwealth. They should be certified. And Governor Tom Wolf, they should be certified by the legislature, once again. Another thing that's going wrong, you know. Uh, these findings are in addition to prior cons- concerns regarding actions by the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, the, sec- uh, the secretary and other impacting the conduct of the election. A comparison, and this it goes on to explain it, a comparison of official county election results to the total number of voters who voted on November 3rd as recorded by the Department of State shows that 6.9 million total ballots were reported as being cast while the system records indicates that only 6.7. Uh, million total votes actually voted so the actual system of how many people voted says 6.7 but then when you go to check the number of ballots that are recorded it says 6.9 among the 6.9 total ballots cast six so it's 6.96 6.931 total votes were counted in the presidential race including all three candidates on the ballot and writing candidates the difference of 202,000 more votes cast than voters voting, together with the 31,547. Over and under votes in the presidential race adds up to an alarming discrepancy of 170,000 votes, which is more than twice the reported statewide difference between the two major candidates for president of the United States. On November 24th, 2020, Bookvar uh, certified election results and Wolf issued a certificate of ascertainment of presidential electors, which once again, that's something that is supposed to be of the legislative discretion stating the Vice President Joe Biden received 80,000 more votes than President Trump. So we're looking at an 80,000 vote discrepancy. Now, this difference in the voting systems, the counties came through with all the data, it is is 170,000 votes. So that's well with, you know, outside the margin of victory, uh, or within the margin of victory, if let's say half those votes even, uh, I don't know, whatever the percentage would be needed uh, for Trump to end up winning. Over there, so I'm gonna also have a visual up here on the screen, and it kind of explains it better for you. Um, yeah, so so you got you got total ballots cast. That's the county data, the sure data system, and that's the people that you know. That's the verified the voters that actually voted is 6.7, and then the county data is 6.9 million, and there it looks like a 202,000 vote discrepancy there. So uh, yeah, <laughs> it's absurd, but what do you? Oh, man, it's outrageous. Now, so next what I have is, uh, and th- this this one's awesome. This is an awesome article that I found. I found this on the Epic Times. Peter Swab, the same exact guy that wrote the last, the very first article I went over having to do with uh, the 12th Amendment and what's going to happen on January 6th. And I think I'm going to cut that clip down, maybe, and I'll make it shorter so, so people can listen to it. So Facebook, it's titled Facebook Fact Checkers Dominated by Left-Leaning Funding, Personnel, Organizations. So the Media Research Center, a right-leaning media watchdog, identified nine Facebook fact checkers relevant to American content. Reuters, USA Today, Lead Stories, Check Your Fact, Factcheck.org, PolitiFact, Science Feedback, The Associated Press, the and AFP Fact Check. Only one of the org- organizations has a right-leaning background. The Daily Callers Check Your Fact. So so there's one out of, what is that, nine is actually uh, right-leaning. Now, Facebook didn't respond to a request for further information, such as its full list of fact-checkers and how much Facebook pays them for the service. Some of the fact-checkers have indicated that they are getting paid by Facebook. Um. Now posts flagged as false by partners not only get furnished with the warning label and a link to the fact check but also throttled on the platform meaning Facebook significantly reduces the number of people who see it and I explained this before when it gets flagged and also on top of that it gets the little disclaimer now it gets it's throttled as in it reduces the amount of people that can see it it's suppressed Uh, The fact checks have been a matter of controversy in 2019. Facebook throttled the page of anti-abortion group live action after two of its videos made a claim labeled false. By one of the fact false, quote unquote false, and then and then they'll go through and they'll say it's lacking context, and which pretty much just means we subjectively uh, we can't find anything that factually is actually cr- incorrect with this, but we think that you're trying to lead people into a false narrative, which is something that the media does all the time. Uh, so it later turned out that the fact checker relied on comments by two abortionists. Uh, in response, the American Association of Pro-life uh, OBGYNs issued a letter saying the videos were justified in saying that abortion is never medically necessary. Wow. There you go. So uh, now Facebook recently positioned itself as a major and unprecedented influence in the lead up to the 2020 presidential election after its CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, announced new election-related content rules, a $300 million donation to local election offices, and a drive to help 4 million people register and vote this year. Uh, Some experts have already started to raise alarm about Facebook's influence on the election process. Facebook's fact-checkers need to be certified by the International Fact-Checking Network. So this is very interesting. Uh, Make sure you pay attention to this here. Now, Facebook describes the organization as nonpartisan, but that doesn't tell you the whole story. So the IAF, I'm going to refer to it as the IFCN. That is the International Fact-Checking Network. The International Fact-Checking Network was set up by Pointer, pointer, a journalism nonprofit. So Pointer, it's called. That's the journalism nonprofit that set up the IFCN. Uh, And in 2019, was almost entirely funded by eBay founder founder Pierre Omidyar. A major Democrat donor, as well as Google, and guess who else? Progressive billionaire George Soros. They're the ones that uh, that funded that nonprofit, Pointner, and then Pointner. And this is this is all I've explained this before. This is like uh, using Pointner as a proxy to create the IFCN, the fact-checking uh, network. So Facebook is also listed as one of the previous donors. So Facebook also paid into it. So that's why I say, when when, oh, third-party, it's not really uh, third-party fact-checkers. It's all all the same people. They're all of the liberal bias. Now, who gets certified and who doesn't is decided by the IFCN's seven-member advisory board made up of representatives of fact-checking organizations, one from Africa, one from Bosnia, and Herzegovina, one from Spain, one from India, one from Latin America, and two from the United States. So, out of all these people, you have only two of them are from the United States. The two Americans seem to be the only ones with experience covering U.S. political news. One is Glenn Kessler, a former foreign policy reporter and now the head of the fact-checking feature at the Washington Post. So, here's a biased... I mean, to begin with, this is a biased person because he's supposed to be the one that approves fact-checking organizations. But he already is part of the Washington Post, so he has his own foot in the game as well. And then Kessler... Uh, so, so yeah, so Kessler and his team recently published a book called Donald Trump and his assault on truth. So we're talking about a guy that's deeply partisan here. So the other American is Angie D- Drobnik Holland, editor in chief at PolitiFact. Once again, that is another partisan because PolitiFact is a left wing source, which is owned by Pointner. So that's great. So PolitiFact is owned by Poitner, and Pointner is is funded by George Soros as well as Pierre Omidyar, who is a huge Democrat donor and the owner of uh, eBay, as well as Facebook also also gives money to Pointner. It's weird because Facebook really, it's their own proprietary. If, if they're giving money to these agencies, then that means it's really their own proprietary fact check. They can tell them how to fact check if they really wanted to. Uh, they don't really have to probably because these people are so left-wing and they're so down with the calls that it doesn't matter. They are, are willing to to uh, destroy their own integrity by lying. They don't really need to be coerced by money. Now, the the other American is, oh yeah, that's that's what I said. So since September 2018, PolitiFact has conducted more than 1,400 fact checks for Facebook with 84% giving the verdict of false. Its largest financial sponsor is Omidyar's Democracy Fund, so from what it looks like, PolitiFact, man, this is so messy, so PolitiFact is funded by the owner of eBay, who also funds the Pointner, which essentially, which creates the IFCN, who is in charge of verifying all these fact checkers. Payments from Facebook made up more than 5% of its revenue in 2019. The company states on its website, without specifying the sum, review of the applications reveals the virtually all American-based fact checkers have been assessed by three people, Michael Wagner, Margot Suska, and Steve Fox. Fox, the least prolific with five assessments under his belt, is a former web editor at the Washington Post. Before that, he was a sports writer. Now he teaches journalism at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He didn't immediately respond to a request for comment. Imagine how useless the degree of, of journalism is at University of Massachusetts in Amherst. They probably just teach you to be a, a, a Democrat operative and a Democrat activist. So Suska, an assistant professor of communications at Amer- American University, has done 14 assessments, including the AP, the Washington Post, and Lead Stories. Lead Stories was started in 2015 by Belgian tech whiz Martin Schneck, uh, CNN veteran Alan Duke and two lawyers from Florida and cl- Colorado. It listed operating expenses of less than fifty thousand in 2017, but had expanded sevenfold by 2019, largely thanks to the more than four hundred sixty thousand Facebook paid it in fact-checking services in 2018 and 2019. The company took on more than a dozen staffers about half of them CNN and alumni so so lead stories is essentially CNN in fact check mode so in january lead stories wrote some 150 facebook fact checks almost three times the output of other fact checkers reported the MRC which is the the media research uh, what are they? The Media Research Foundation or whatever, which pointed out that the organization checked right-leaning sources, right-leaning content four times more than that of the left-leaning content. There you go. So right-leaning content gets fact-checked, and and it's not even it's not even they don't even do the fact-check verifying false or true. Now they do add context or or misleading story, even if your facts are true. Um. So yeah, essentially, these fact checkers. Are funded by Soros they're funded by the founder of eBay they are uh, alum from the Washington Post far left-leaning as well as CNN they're just they're just really a perpetuation of the same people all in the group think saying the same thing to each other believing the same ideology there really is not any objective or or impartial audience there of the fact checkers they're out there to push a narrative they're out there to to uh, to really streamline and manipulate the people that are reading their information. So now next, what I have, and I'm going to continue. I'm going to continue on this note here. <laughs> so what I have is I have a article from Bongino.com, and it is it is uh, posted. I think it's coming from. Oh, it's republished from the National Pulse, written by Natalie Winters. The headline is Mainstream Media Outlets Participated in Private Dinners Sponsored by CCP-Funded Group. CCP is the Chinese Communist Party-funded uh, group. Now, a host of corporate media outlets, included, including CNN, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and MSNBC, have participated in private dinners and sponsored trips with the China-United States Ex- Exchange Foundation, a Chinese Communist Party-funded group seeking to garner favorable coverage and disseminate positive messages regarding China the national pulse can reveal uh, so yeah this this company called United what is it United States Exchange Foundation China United States Exchange Foundation which is deeply funded by the Chinese Communist Party since most uh, since most corporations in China are funded by the Communist Party or they're somewhat controlled by the Communist Party but this one for sure this is a pay, uh, what is it a pay for play scheme from what it looks like here? Now, other outlets involved in the propaganda operation included Forbes, the Financial Times, Newsweek, Bloomberg, Reuters, ABC News, the Economist, the Wall Street Journal, AFP, Time Magazine, LA Times, The Hill, BBC, and the Atlantic. Uh, these across the board are pretty much left leaning. All of them. Uh, Wall Street Journal is a little conservative when it comes to economy, but when it comes to social, it's pretty far left. Now the relationship is revealed in the Department of Justice's Foreign Agent Registration Act, so FARA is is the abbreviation. Uh, filings which reveal a relationship spanning over a decade between establishment media outlets and the the China United States Exchange Foundation. So now they're gonna they're gonna start labeling it as the China United States Exchange Foundation is called CUSEF or QSEF. I'll just call it. So QSEF is a Chinese Communist Party-funded initiative founded by Tung Chihua. The group also targets American universities with offers to fund po- policy research, high-level dialogues, and exchange programs. So Tung Chihua also serves as vice chairman and of the Chinese People's Political Consultation Conference, uh, identified by the U.S.-China Security and Economic Review Commission as a key component of the Chinese Communist Party's united work front. So we have this guy that uh, pretty much works right below the Chinese Communist Party, and he gives funding for initiatives of policy research in, un- in American universities uh, and other exchange programs. Uh, essentially probably trying to push some sort of a narrative in the policy uh, research, I would assume. So the effort, according to the U.S. government report, aims to uh, to co-op and neutralize sources of potential opposition to the policies and authority of its ruling Chi- uh, Chinese Communist Party. The United Front strategy uses a range of methods to influence overseas Ch- uh, Chinese communities, foreign governments, and other actors to take action or adopt position supportive of beijing's preferred policies it continues Uh, the strategy appears to have been deployed in conjunction with outlets such as cnn new york times and washington post and this would actually give you a little background information into why it is that anything that ever bad anything bad that ever happens in this country the adversary of this country by the media is always propagated to be the russians it's never the chinese even though everyone knows the chinese is so much more economically powerful as well as militarily their military strength is leaps and bounds above that of the russians the the russians are not our real threat it is china but it seems like the media just goes past that and they just keep pointing at the russians and the Kremlin over and over again it's like this it's this propagated myth of coming from the media that's really been perpetuated, like throughout everybody that's on the left and listens to any left-wing media sources. Nobody ever says anything bad about the Communist Party in China and and the human rights offenses therein. But they are very quick to to not not really even rip into Russia, but always say, "Oh, Russia's after us," you know. Trump's in the pocket of the Russian administration. Uh, so so next, what I have here, and this I think this is my last one because I am going a little long here. Oh no no! I have two more. One of them's uh, like pretty much woke BS. So the National Review Senate. Uh, this is a National Review article, uh, and its title. Let me see. Senate investigation finds Obama administration knowingly funded Al Qaeda affiliate. Uh, so, this is written by Brittany Bernstein. A nonprofit, and this is another story having to do with, I guess, embezzlement of funds or proxy services. Nonprofit humanitarian agency, World Vision, United States, improperly transacted with Islamic Relief Agency. So, they're going to refer to the Islamic Relief Agency as the ISRA in 2014, with approval from the Obama administration, sending government funds to an organization that has been sanctioned over its ties to terrorism, according to a new report. So the Senate Finance Committee, so the Senate has their own powers to to investigate certain things that have to do with enacting law and doing their job. So they're able to investigate things that have to do, that fall within their purview. Um, They recently released a report, the Senate, detailing the findings of an investigation. His staff began in February 2019, so this is Chuck Grassley talking about his staff. They started this investigation in February 2019 into the relationship between World Vision, which is the non-profit humanitarian agency. They're, they're like, uh, I think, evangelical Christians. I'm not 100% sure. And the ISRA, which is the Islamic Relief Agency. The probe found that World Vision was not aware that the ISRA had been sanctioned by the U.S. since 20, 2004 after funneling roughly $5 million to Maktab al-Aqamadat the predecessor to Al-Qaeda controlled by Os- Osama bin Laden. So before we had Osama bin Laden, we had this guy named Moktab Al-Khamadid. I don't know, I can't even say his name. So in 2004, though, the ISRA, they funneled him $5 million through their agency. Uh So according to the Senate report, World Vision submitted a grant application to the United States Agency for International Development to carry out its Blue Nile recovery program on January 21st, 2014. The proposed program sought to provide food security, sanitation equipment and health services to areas hit hard by conflict in the Blue Nile region of Sudan. So now the United States Agency for International Development awarded World Vision a $723,000 grant for the program. The next month, the ISRA agreed to provide humanitarian services to these parts of the Blue Nile region's uh, the two organizations, World Vision and the ISRA, collaborated in several projects in 2013 and 14, 2014. The investigation was sparked by a July 2018 National Review article in which Sam Westrop, the director of Middle East uh, Forum's Islamic, Islamist Watch, detailed MEF's findings that the Obama administration had approved $200,000 of, of taxpayer money to the ISRA. So when he says the MEF, I'm trying to look at what the MEF was. I'm going to miss that. I remember reading, it is kind of hard to follow this story. Because there's so much money moving. And that's the point of it, is these these agencies, they move money around. But from what it seems like, World Vision didn't actually know that these people were on a watch list. And when they looked for the money, this is what should have happened. When you go to look for a relief or, or some sort of... Um, some sort of grant from the government, you actually have to give them reasons for why you're getting the grant. So so they probably put down the ISRA, I'd assume, and I think it goes on to say that. Government officials specifically, here it is, government officials specifically authorized the release of at least $115,000 of this grant, even after learning that it was designated uh to a terror organization so this organization is in as in this isra they knew because to get that in order to achieve that grant the world vision has to put down who it is what the money is for oh the middle when they say the mef they mean the middle east forums islamist uh watch list so yeah so the obama administration whoever he had working for him these government officials these bureaucrats they knew who they were giving the money to, and they just essentially they just did not vet. They did not do what they were supposed to be doing. They're supposed to vet these different agencies or these different pro- nonprofits. So World Vision only discovered ISRA was sanctioned after the evangelical humanitarian nonprofit discussed partnering with the International Organization for Migration on a separate humanitarian project in Sudan and performing a routine vetting of World Vision and its partners. Um, the International Organization for Migration discovered so so this international this we're just gonna call it the IOM they they actually vetted they they had to do a background check on World Vision and then the ISRA and then they're the ones that really found out uh, they found out that what is it discovered the ISRA's sanctioned status and reached out to the Office of Foreign Assets Control so we have all these random offices we have this huge bureaucracy and we're not really they have been proven to be completely inefficient and they have not done what they're supposed to be doing and here's another thing and this is this kind of points to all that fat that was in that relief bill. Uh, we're sending money all over the place in the United States that's what it seems like and we're sending it to other countries and we really should be trying to hold it here for the people that live in this this country. And this is how the money gets displaced in the, in the big government bureaucracy. You have, you know, $115,000 go directly to these proxy of of terrorist organizations. So after receiving confirmation from, from this office, they rejected, the IOM rejected World Vision's offer to collaborate. And then World Vision's legal department was notified by IRC of ISRA's potential status as sanctioned entity in September 2014 and immediately halted all payments to the organization while it investigated. So the nonprofit sent a letter to the OFAC on November 19th uh, asking for a clarification of the ISRA's status and requesting that in the event of the IRS... The ISRA was sanctioned, it, it'd be awarded a temporary license to finish out their organization's existing contracts because I guess they had some sort of contract obligation. So two two months later, Treasury responded, confirming that the ISRA is sanctioned and denying the request for a license to work with the organization as that would be inconsistent with OS. FAC policy one month later World Vision submitted another request for a license to transcript with ISRA to pay them $125,000 for services rendered lest it faced legal consequences and potential expulsion from sudan on may 4th 2015 the obama administration state department recommended ofac grant world vision's uh, request for the license to transact so essentially they end up giving them the money even knowing that this is a, a proxy for terror now this is the state department meaning that this was under the purview of not only the obama administration but also of hillary clinton and they dropped the ball on this and now they're paying that one hundred twenty five thousand dollars out because they screwed up and they know they screwed up by not uh background and vetting them in the first place so we also, let's see what else it says. The report said the investigation did not find any evidence that World Vision intentionally sought to circumvent U.S. sanctions. We also found no evidence that World Vision knew that the ISRA was sanctioned. Boop, 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 boop. And that's that's really it. But we should not be giving these, these subsidies of U.S. Uh, taxpayer dollars to organizations that are supporting terrorist groups, including Osama Bin Laden. That's all I got to say about that. That's a huge ball drop from the bureaucracy, which isn't surprising to me uh so my very very last one and then i'll then i'm going to give you some references i have some other stuff but you can look it up yourself because it's not like super substantial maybe i can cover it in the next video but very last one house of representatives has these new woke uh rules eliminating pronouns so every single before every single i guess house session for the next two years because the house of representatives hold their seat for two years they they write the rules for when they're on the house floor, what they have to say, how they how they say things, how how certain people like the whole procedure really of how their discourse transpires. So uh, this is the Daily Caller. I have pictures up here, and I'm trying to make it. I hope it's clear up on the screen. But they are eliminating. Uh, in this, in this, these, this protocol that needs to still be passed and agreed upon, they are eliminating gender-inclusive language. Um, now they're changing, they're changing language to make it gender-inclusive. Now, so in clause one, they are striking the word semen; they are changing it to seafarers. And in clause four, they are striking the word chairman and ch- and inserting the word chair instead. Uh, now in clause eight c3 of rule you know 23 i mean it's so ridiculous that they have all these uh strike and and this is really substantial and they're striking the word father mother son daughter brother sister uncle aunt first cousin nephew niece husband wife father-in-law mother-in-law son-in-law daughter-in-law brother-in-law sister-in-law stepfather stepmother stepson stepdaughter stepbrother step Sister, half-brother, half-sister, grandson or granddaughter. Anything that has to do with sex. Anything that's indicative of sex, they're getting rid of completely. Now, they're going to... And then there's another... And and I'll tell you what they're going to do in result, what their remedy is. So then there's another rule here. Strike the word. Get rid of... Submit his or her resignation and just insert resign. Like this person resign instead of writing this person submitted their resignation. Uh... And now they're making things grammatically incorrect by the way they're wording it now at this point. So strike he or she serves and insert such member, delegate, or resident commissioner serves. It's just talking about things in a very uh, general sense. Now strike he or she holds and insert such member, delegate, or resident commissioner holds. And then it says uh, strike father, mother, son, daughter. Oh yeah, I already explained that. So instead to respond or to... uh, I don't have the other part. There's another part that's like that's absurd. What they're gonna use the words that they're gonna use instead. If I could try to find it here, I'm trying. My apologies, everybody. Uh, but yeah, they give the alternate word usage, and it's 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 ridiculous what they're gonna want to use. Uh, daughter, daughter, parent. Okay, so what they're gonna do now. Instead of having half-brother, half-sister, sister, brother, mother-in-law. So now they're going to insert this. These, these are the words going to use instead to explain everything. So if you have a, a mother or father, you need to actually indicate which of the two it is. But now they're just going to use the word parent uh, instead. So parent, child, sibling. Parents, parents, sibling, instead of aunt or uncle. Uh, first cousin, sibling's child, instead of niece or nephew uh spouse instead of husband or wife which really doesn't make just makes this isn't even for uh really this is not for the l or the g of the lgbtq communities this is for like the q part of the community or people that just don't identify as anything at this point um so now they have what is a spouse parent-in-law instead of a father-in-law or mother-in-law child-in-law instead of yeah that's that's weird or adoptive child or, or what have you um, or, oh, they're going to use that instead of stepson or stepdaughter, they're going to use child-in-law, a uh, sibling-in-law, instead of use brother or sister-in-law, step-parent, instead of stepfather or stepmother, stepchild, instead of stepson or stepdaughter, and step-sibling, half-sibling, and grandchild, instead of saying my grandson or my granddaughter. So that's what they're doing now at this point, because of wokeness and political correctness. So we're trying to change uh, the English language. We're trying to change the language in general, and this is something that has been set in stone. And maybe there's certain parts that have been changed, or or uh, words have changed the way in which they've been spelt, depending on the English, on the American English, or the British English. But we are completely eliminating... Uh, the pronouns that are being used, that, that were used for generations because of wokeness. We're, we're eliminating things and we're making laws really, and this never works out, we're making laws for a minority, and I'm not even talking about a minority, I'm talking about an unusual, a, um, an anomalous group of people, uh, uh, an amount of people that are, are probably lower than 1% of the population. We're going to change all of the rules of language. We're going to change the meanings of words. Uh, because of less than one percent of our population it's absurdity it is wokeism at its finest Um, it's just madness it's easy when there's no rules in society and and the society's crumbling that way it's easier to take everybody out by the knees and that's why they do things like this now so so the last two i have i have an economic experts talking about how pessimistic they are on the stock market under biden that's a bongino article and then and then if you want to check it out and then i have a uh, biden team and this one's actually funnier this is a daily wire article and maybe i'll actually cover this in my next episode but they he disables his team disables the chat on video conference because the reporters were asking too tough of questions of him and he could not comprehend and comprehensively answer them back so that's hilarious so Everyone, please like, share, subscribe. Uh, Tell people to check this out if they're kind of confused at what's going to to transpire on uh, January 6th, which I think is a Wednesday. Uh, Yeah, so like, share, subscribe, drop the mic, let people know about the podcast. That's really it. I hope everyone enjoys their weekend. I will see everyone on Monday. Thank you.